Well, today is the third Sunday of Advent, and we all know what that means. It means Christmas is coming, and a big part of that story is the shepherds. They're out in the field. They're keeping watch over their flocks by night, and an angel of the Lord appears to them, and the glory of the Lord shines around them, and well... You know the rest. They are the first to hear the good news. The good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And the good news that they hear, this gospel is uniquely tied to David. Like it's Davidic news. This shows up in all of these Christmas texts, especially in Luke's gospel. The angel who appeared to Mary, herself of the house of David, told her that her child would sit on the throne, the throne of his father David, and reign forever. And at the birth of Christ, the birth of Christ, the shepherds are told, for unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So the city of David, the throne of David, the household of David, the line of David, they're all implicated in the story. The story of the Messiah is bound up with the story of David, and that story comes first to these shepherds out in the field. So why shepherds? Well, different answers are given, such as shepherds were a despised class. They were poor, they were marginalized, and if the good news is for them, then surely the good news is for everybody. But in fact, there's a better, I think, and a more biblical reason why the shepherds are in the story. And that reason involves our text this morning from Jeremiah 33. What is happening in this part of Jeremiah is that Israel is being dragged off to Babylon, into exile. So within a few years of this text, right, the temple's going to be destroyed, the city's destroyed, the land is left desolate. And yet in this prophecy from Jeremiah, God assures them, right, through the prophet, Jeremiah is under a kind of house arrest here. He's basically in prison. God assures them that he's going to restore them to the land. It's going to bring them back out of exile. And I want you to hear the words that are just before our text. This is what Jeremiah says. Thus says the Lord, in this place of which you say, it is a waste without man or beast. In the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate, there shall be heard again the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, and the voices of those who sing as they bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord. And what a beautiful word to these people whose whole culture has been decimated, right? Thus says the Lord of hosts, Jeremiah continues, in this place that is a waste, without man or beast, and in all of its cities, there shall again be habitations of shepherds resting their flocks. In the cities of the hill country, the places about Jerusalem, and in the cities of Judah, flocks shall pass again under the hands of the one who counts them, says the Lord. 
So it's a word that promises Israel that after the exile will come the restoration to the land and the restoration of some normalcy, right? Some peace, mirth, laughter, bride, bridegroom. And mentioned twice, twice, shepherds. Back in the land, out in the field, counting their flocks. And it's in that time, that time of relative peace after the exile, that according to our text, the Messiah appears. That is why there are shepherds in the Christmas story. That's why there are shepherds in the Christmas story. They're out there. They're out there because they are here in the time of our text. And with that, we're going to look at this Old Testament lesson, the Jeremiah text, under three headings. The branch, the priest king, and the multitude. This is really a remarkable prophecy from Jeremiah, kind of underappreciated in the uh, array of Christmas prophecies, of which there are quite a few. Uh, But this one is very dense and and full of really, I think, uh, comfort and joy for the people of God. So first then, the branch, Jeremiah 33 Verse 14, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. What promise, you ask? Well, the promise that we just looked at, I just read it. The promise that God's going to restore people to the land. He's going to bring them back from the exile so that mirth and laughter and shepherds and their flocks will again be seen and heard in the land. That's the promise. Right? It is into this post-exilic situation, in those days at that time, verse 15 says, in those days at that time, that the Messiah will appear. So the Messiah is not going to appear, you know, at the abyss of Israel's history, nor at the height of it. He's going to appear after the exile, when some sense of normalcy is restored, and shepherds are back out, tending their flocks in the fields, and there's weddings, and there's family life. And that's when he does appear. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. Now, of course, David is long dead by the time Jeremiah prophesies this. David died 300, 400 years before this. But from David's line, The Messiah will spring. The Messiah is a branch or an offshoot or a descendant of David. And here, on this point, the prophetic witness, right? The testimony of the prophets is clear and it's it's pervasive. If you go back in Jeremiah a few chapters, go back to Jeremiah 23, he's already used this righteous branch language of the Messiah, Zechariah uses the same image. Isaiah 4 speaks of the same image. And perhaps the most famous passage, you know, along these lines is Isaiah 11. We read there the following. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. So Jesse's David's father. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So we have a Davidic offspring. A branch. And notice in our prophecy from Jeremiah, it's a righteous branch. Right? Back in chapter 23, Jeremiah called the branch 
the Lord our righteousness. This is our problem, right? Our fundamental problem with God is he's righteous, we're not. And so the branch is a righteous branch. And this branch will, as the Davidic king, notice what Jeremiah says here. What will the branch do? He will execute justice and righteousness in the land. And in those days, Judah will be saved. Jerusalem will dwell securely. In Isaiah's language, if you go back to the prophet Isaiah, he speaks of the Messiah having a belt of righteousness on. He sits on the throne of David, and over his kingdom, he establishes it, he upholds it with justice and righteousness. This at a time, by the way, when Jeremiah's contemporaries are seeing the monarchy dashed and completely destroyed. So, Calvin speaks of this language, this language that refers in the Old Testament to Judah, to Jerusalem, to the house of David, to justice in the land, and so forth. This is language, he says, of the spiritual kingdom of Christ. Right? The Reformed have always read the Old Testament prophecies as pointing forward to the church. It's language of the spiritual kingdom of Christ dressed up in the garb of Israel's theocracy. In other words, it's what we call typological language or symbolic language, which points forward to Christ's reign over his people in the spirit. It's really important to get this when we read the prophets. Right? After all, where is the throne of David in the new covenant? It's in heaven. Where, what does the land point to? It points to Israel's inheritance. What is our inheritance? The renewed heavens and earth. Where is the temple and the sanctuary? Well, it's the, it's the church which enters into the heavenly sanctuary by the Spirit. Where is Jerusalem in the new covenant? It's the city of God which comes down out of heaven. It's the Jerusalem from above. Where is Zion? Where is the mountain? Where is all this stuff? It's been relocated into the realm of heaven. So in short, the language of an earthly, prosperous Judah and Jerusalem is symbolic language, pointing to the eternal heavenly kingdom of God, which has already begun and is underway in the life of the church. So this way of reading the Old Testament was a commonplace among the Reformers, especially for Calvin, Listen to what he says on this very passage. This is, the, this is Calvin on this passage from Jeremiah 33. He says, The salvation of which Jeremiah now prophesies is not to be confined to the boundaries of a fading life, nor is it to be sought in the world where it has no standing. But if we wish to know what it is, we must learn to raise our thoughts upwards, above the world and everything that exists here. The promise applies to the kingdom of Christ and ought to raise our thoughts to heaven itself. This is how we read these texts. So when the text says the Davidic king executes justice and righteousness in the land, it refers to restoring his people, renewing them through the spirit in righteousness, holiness, and knowledge, as Ephesians 4 says. 
The text points us to Jesus Christ who restores the image of God in us who are not righteous. And you are the Israel of God. You are the Jerusalem which is from above. And what's the result of the Messiah's work in the text? The branch is going to come. The branch is going to execute justice. And the result is, it's right there in verse 16, Judah will be saved. Jerusalem will dwell securely. Right? God will have a redeemed people. They'll be utterly saved and they'll dwell in utter security. The Lord, who is our righteousness, will save his people. Every last one to the uttermost. Judah will be saved. And we shall dwell in utter security and safety. Right? Having been justified, we have peace with God. And we shall have consummate peace with God. Now, notice the end of verse 16. This is the name by which it shall be called. The Lord is our righteousness. So there's a question to ask here, right? What is the it here? This is the name by which it shall be called. Well, the it refers to Jerusalem, the saved and secured city of God. So it turns out that the church, right, shall be designated by this title, the Lord is our righteousness. Probably because that's our basic confession, right, that the Lord is our righteousness. Back in 23, chapter 23, when Jeremiah was speaking of the branch, he said the branch himself, he shall be called the Lord is our righteousness. So, look what's happened here. The Davidic Messiah is called the Lord our righteousness. He saves a people, and they too shall be called by the name, the Lord is our righteousness. As I said before, righteousness is our biggest concern, right? We, are, we need to be clothed with an alien righteousness because we're not righteous and God is just. So, the righteous branch creates a righteous people clothed in the Messiah's own righteousness. So here we have, 600 years before Christ, or 580 years before Christ in Jeremiah, we have this beautiful picture of our justification, our being declared righteous. And also it's a picture of your sanctification, your being made righteous in Christ. Right? What is the Messiah trying to do? He's trying to fashion a people who are all the way down and all the way out just and righteous. And so the Lord, our righteousness, creates a people who are called the Lord, our righteousness. Christ, who fleshed out the human obedience that Israel failed to exercise. That's why Israel's going into exile. That Christ who became for us righteousness from God. Christ who knew no sin, yet for our sakes was made sin. That we might what? Become the righteousness of God in him. Christ in whom we can be found, Paul says, not having a righteousness of our own. That comes from the law but one which comes through faith, the righteousness from God which depends on faith. 
In short, we have here in the span of three verses a promise of a righteous Davidic Messiah whose righteousness is given to and becomes our righteousness. That, beloved, is the gospel. The gospel of Christmas, the gospel in the mouth of Jeremiah as the people are being carried off into Babylonian exile. So that's the branch. The second point I want you to see, and here Jeremiah's prophecy gets even a bit more dense. The second point here is the priest king. So Jeremiah knows that there's a promise that God made, a covenant that God made with David. And if you, if you hear the words covenant with David, you should think 2 Samuel 7. Lord willing, we'll look at that text next week. 2 Samuel 7, that's where the covenant with David is made. And that covenant is reiterated at length, if you want to see it expounded, in Psalm 89 and Psalm 132. So David's referring, I mean, Jeremiah's referring to all of this. He has this in mind. And in verse 17, he says, thus says the Lord. David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. Right? The Davidic kingdom will last forever. And a man, a man, one in our nature, will always be seated on the throne. That's fairly familiar stuff. But then in verse 18, there's this really provocative promise. Listen to this. The Levitical priests also shall never lack a man in my presence to offer a burnt offering or grain offerings or to make sacrifices forever. So it seems like there's like two promises here. There'll be a Davidic king who sits on the throne forever and a Levitical priesthood to offer sacrifices forever. But we should know that that's not how we're going to read this text in Christ. right? The Davidic king and the priesthood both last forever, but we heard in the New Testament lesson from Hebrews 7, right, that Christ is a perpetual priest who transcends the Levitical priesthood, brings it to an end, replaces it with a better, permanent, eternal priesthood. So there are not two figures here in this text. There's one, Christ the son of David, the messianic king, and Christ the Melchizedekian high priest. Both of those things are present in Jeremiah's prophecy. He promises a priest king. And so secure, so abiding is this order that the Messiah ushers in. That God says in verse 20, if you could break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, then my covenant with David and the Levitical priest could be broken. Notice, just this is an aside, but notice that the creation itself has these regular rhythms, right? Day and night. And in Scripture, they're covenantal. Creation itself is a covenantal order. God has originally in Genesis 1, and then again later in the covenant with Noah, after the flood, God has made a covenant with the whole order of creation. And this created order points to this eternal order of the Messiah, the king who sits on David's throne forever and the high priest who, because of his indestructible life, has no successor but holds his priesthood eternally. 
So this remarkable text has shown us a Davidic Messiah who is the Lord our righteousness and who is also a priest and a king forever. So finally, the third point here is the multitude. This one, this Christ, will gather a people, a great multitude. Look at verse 22. As the host of heaven cannot be numbered and the sands of the sea cannot be measured... So I will multiply the offspring of David, my servant, and the Levitical priests who minister to me. It's as if in Jewish terms, right, in Israel's terms, you would see a bunch of Davidic descendants and a bunch of priests all over the place. I want to say three things about this, this promise here. First, hopefully you recognize this language, right? This is language of the Abrahamic covenant. This is Abrahamic language. God uses this language to tell Abraham that he's going to have a great multitude of descendants and offspring. And second, I just want to stop for a second. I know there's a lot here. This is a a thick text. But I, I just want to show you how important this notion of covenant, which I know we Reformed can seem obsessed with it, but just notice how important it is. So just briefly... What has been mentioned or alluded to in just this text on this question? Just in this passage alone, there's a covenant with creation, which was resumed with Noah. He's referred to the covenant with Abraham. He's referred to the covenant with Moses in his reference to the, with the Levitical priests. He's referred to the covenant with David and his house, all pointing to the Messiah and the establishment of the new covenant of God. The whole economy of God, from creation to new creation, by way of covenant, could be unpacked from just this passage. That's an aside as well. But the third thing I want you to see here is, we know this. Jesus Christ is the seed of Abraham. But notice, in Christ, verse 22 promises innumerable offspring of David and the Levitical priest to minister before God. So the text doesn't point to Christ alone. Right? It points to the body of Christ. It refers to the people of God. You are the kings. You are the priests which share in and partake of this royal priest king and his reign. The church is Davidic in that it shares in Christ's reign. The church is Levitical in that it shares in Christ's priesthood. So, as we said earlier, this is what we call typological language. It's clothed in the time and in the institutions of Israel, right? That's why you have Levitical priests here. But it's pointing forward to the royal priestly status of all the people of God. So here you are. Here we are. Part of the great multitude who partake of Christ. You are an embodiment of the fulfillment of this text. You are a royal priesthood, a kingdom of priests. Called to offer up spiritual sacrifices to God. You are envisioned in this text. And together with all the saints, the innumerable host of the elect gathered from the ends of the earth. You are what John the Apostle sees 
when he looks at Revelation chapter 7 and he sees the throng of saints in heaven. And he says this, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne of the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You know, we're in a kind of a privileged position, right? Because this would have seemed nothing short of absolutely fantastic to the Jeremiah's contemporaries who heard these words from his mouth. But but we are some 2,500 years later, and the the branch has appeared. And the nations are, are being gathered in. And the priest king is reigning from heaven. And we are reigning with him, offering holy spiritual sacrifices with him. Now, we may take all of this for granted, but we should recognize it's a stunning fulfillment of sovereign supernatural prophecy that's been wrought in Jesus Christ. John, and John sees this magnificent vision of this collection of the redeemed praising God in his vision. So this, all of this, all of this is what happens starting in those days, at that time, that time of peace after the exile, when the righteous branch springs up. So back to the beginning. This is why there are shepherds tending their flocks in the field in the Christmas story. It turns out they're pretty important. It turns out you're not going to be able to grasp Christmas without grasping Jeremiah 33. It's really, really important. Otherwise, you've just got a bunch of stuff happening. All of this Davidic language, all of this stuff with the shepherds in the fields, because this is the time when the Lord, our righteousness, that is such good news. I just want to stop on that for a second. Right? This is the gospel. The Lord who is righteous, is our righteousness in Jesus Christ. That's the best news imaginable to human beings who are not righteous. That the Lord is our righteousness. He is now born king of the Jews. And this is why not only the shepherds are there, but angelic hosts appear and they sing. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. So, rejoice and be glad. Every word in this text, all the covenants of God, all the promises of kingship, all that the priests were to be and do, all the words of the prophet have have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. God keeps his promises. Indeed, in the righteous branch, all the promises of God are yea and amen. The Lord is your righteousness. And in the Lord, you are righteous. Glory to God. Amen. Amen.